0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a new year on the Film Literature and New World Order podcast. This is the first edition of this podcast series in 2015, so welcome back to all of the listeners. Thank you once again for tuning in for this month's conversation, which, as you well know from having listened to last month's conversation, is going to be on the topic of... Philip Drew, Administrator, A Story of Tomorrow, 1920-1935, to by Edward Mandel House. And I'm sure that the more attentive listeners out there will have realized, um, probably before they even started reading this book, but hopefully by the time they finished it, that I did not commend this particular book to your attention for any perceived literary merit that it may contain, because it contains no literary merit, I would uh, posit. I think it is a turgid tome of trash, Um, from a literary perspective by someone with a tin ear for the English language and (laughs) no sense whatsoever of narrative progression. But I'm sure that at least some of the audience out there will know that this story is uh, being committed to your attention because of its author and his uh, very interesting place in early 20th century American history. That is, of course, Edward Mandel House, a name that I hope at least rings a bell for a large portion of the audience. But to start dissecting this tome and getting to the real meaning behind it, we are going to be joined today by an old friend of ours, someone we haven't talked to in, I think, one year, almost exactly one year, and that is Richard Andrew Grove of Tragedy and Hope at tragedyandhope.com and, of course, the Peace Revolution podcast, peacerevolution.org. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on the program, Richard. It is
1: great to have you here. Thank you, James, for inviting me back once again to ring in the new year. How are you doing?
0: I am doing very good. And yes, it does strike me that we had a New Year-type conversation last year when we were dissecting uh, Wall Street and Wall Street 2. But here we are a year later, and now we've traveled back in time considerably to talk about a novel that was first published in 1912, and as I understand, it was published anonymously. It did not contain Edward Mandel's house when it was first published. Why don't you tell us, uh, from your perspective, just a little bit about this book, and uh, and perhaps you can at least summarize some of uh, the, the details of this narrative for us.
1: Well, before I, you know, delve into this turgid tome of trash, that was nice alliteration, James. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, li- I really like that. This is the worst reading assignment ever. So everyone in the audience who took time to read Philip Drew Administrator, I want to apologize. I had nothing to do with the assignment. I had to read it, too. I've read it before. I read it again. It still sucks. <laughs> it, is, it is obviously uh, like out of all the pieces of, of literature that I have archived here, as pieces of evidence that form, you know, puzzle pieces that all fit together. This is one of the ones I'm always most embarrassed to have to explain to people. It's like there is, you know, this novel. It's a futuristic novel written in the vein of an H.G. Wells type of uh, future. It's written in 1911, published in 1912. It's published anonymously. And that's where it gets interesting because it's mysterious and in searching, uh, I have a reprint because the first editions are like $1,000. And so I wanted to actually see what is the difference between my reprint and what's on file, let's say, at the Harvard Library uh, from the third printing in 1920. Um, this is how the book was introduced on its uh, you know, uh, opening page. And this is something you can easily find on archive.org. Uh, it's been nicely scanned in by the Google company. And it's Philip Drew, Administrator, A Story of Tomorrow, 1920 to 1935. So he's writing this in 1911, published 1912. It's telling you about the future that he kind of wants to create. Now it says, and it starts with a big T, the author of this book, a man prominent in political councils must necessarily remain anonymous. And then it continues on and it basically says, it gives you a little summary of the book. And it says, try to imagine a political boss telling all he knows that will give you an idea of what Philip Drew learns and what this volume contains. So that's stamped 1920 Harvard Library. Now there's a little there's a little handwritten note that most people would ignore, except I have the I have the intimate papers of Colonel House, and someone wrote in there very thoughtfully. Uh, in Volume One, pages 152 to 1 uh, 158, and in Volume Two, page 379, Colonel House admits in his own papers that he is the author of this. Uh, you know, supposedly anonymous document. So for years, before I got the intimate papers at Colonel House and had verified that, I thought, well, you know, it's written anonymously. How do we know House really wrote this? How do I know it's not a conspiracy theory uh, that, you know, is on the internet floating around? And the way you find these things out is to ask those questions and then do some searching, see what you find. So um, starting from there, we know that House is truly the author. And he admits it in his papers, and his papers are published by Yale, and the four-volume set is still somewhat available. Uh, I keep mine in plastic. Uh, They're fragile. They're from the 1920s. They're a first edition. And I go in there when I can't find any other reference, and I actually have to go to the book. Because some of the pages aren't even cut because of how they printed books back then. They folded these pieces of paper, and then they would cut them. So every every now and then I have to go in there with a letter opener and actually cut the page open to see what it actually says on the page. What you find out is that House, he, he writes this novel, but he's uh, not being very creative, which is kind of why it sucks and why the characters are all like one-dimensional characters. He's writing about himself. So really, it's a form of House's biography. House, when he was uh, younger and going through school, he sidled up to an Oliver P. Morton, who was a senator from Indiana. And this guy invited them in and basically showed House the ropes behind the scenes. In Philip Drew, Philip Drew, the character, uh, sidles up to a senator named Selwyn. And so there's all these parallels that if you actually understand the biography of Colonel House and his family and, and how they came to power in the South and the Confederacy and the smuggling and the, the British uh, alliances that they formed and all these different angles, you start to see House saying, look, He's the most qualified guy to steer America back into British waters. So what you're what you're looking at is there's an Anglo-American establishment, a group of people who wanted uh, America and Britain to be in the same empire, and to have it back under the empire, not an independent country. And House basically writes his resume in the form of an experimental novel which Woodrow Wilson then takes to Bermuda with him and then kind of makes his plan. So, you know, this is the other thing. Uh, House meets Woodrow Wilson in 1911 during, you know, House's manifesto days when he's writing down his plans. And Wilson doesn't really have any good ideas of his own. And Wilson's the president of Princeton University, which is basically Oxford West. The Fulbright Scholars are the American copy of the Rhodes Scholarships. And now they start, you know, start to overlap with the, the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes, and then when you look further into House's connections, it's uh, he's being handled by people in the Rhodes Milner Roundtable. So, so he's staying with Philip Kerr, Lord Lothian. He's taking orders from Alfred Milner from Milner's kindergarten. So there's a lot of <laughs> obvious overlaps between House's activities. And what he actually did in his political career and the goals and objectives set out by Cecil Rhodes' Last Will and Testament that was carried forth by the Roundtable Group.
0: All right, then let's start framing that that plan in terms of the, the book itself and what's laid out here. And I think people will see the sort of development of the narrative here. Uh, it kind of splits into the, be, the beginning of the book, which is, I, I would say, standard exp, uh, explanation of – uh, what I would consider to be standard progressive thinking in in the early twentieth century, talking a lot about you know the uh, the sort of the spirit of altruism that must be brought up from from uh, the, the the dredges of, of the human soul and and uh, 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 the way that this can be uh, uh, basically labor and capital can work together that type of thing, and then of course after the the uh, the interesting events of the 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 second civil war of the United States that takes place rather quickly in this narrative uh, of course we have the the very interesting part of, uh, I think politically speaking where Philip drew becomes the administrator a, aka the dictator of the country and starts to lay out his agenda so I mean it's a fairly loosely hung narrative uh, in terms of its uh, in terms of an actual piece of literature but very interesting to examine for for the the sorts of political um, ideas that That are launched in it. So let's talk a little bit about Philip Drew's ideas and what he um, what he basically lays out for the country in his time as dictator.
1: Well, if you're going to jump to the second half of the book, then I'll just explain the structure of the. You know, House is the messenger, so the message is his his novel Philip Drew Administrator, and so. Uh, Being a 100-page novel with many layers, there's not a whole lot of room for these layers to be coherent. So you might read a chapter in this book and think, what does that have to do with the overall story that's trying to be told? When you compare the book and its structure to House's political career, then you can see the book is really – and his outline is a series of steps that have to be taken. Now, by the time he writes the book, he's already gone through – you know, these different tragedies and illnesses and the things that kind of give him his unique character where he wants to remain behind the scenes and not actually take control. So this is where House and Philip Drew, the character, start to diverge. Philip Drew is is presented as a character that uh, creates a civil war, takes over as dictator, uh, does all these altruistic things for all the right reasons and is not dishonest or abusive of power and then sets power down at the end of fixing everything, Right or basically reforming the world in his image. <laughs> so there's a the, the dichotomy between the book and its structure and House's actual plan is that House was always a guy who remained behind the scenes, and by being um, an informal advisor to the different presidents and different m- mechanisms of power, he's a- he's able to really be that mechanism of power because he's not in the spotlight. This is similar to what you'd see today in House of Cards and the people influencing uh, the characters in that if you've ever seen that series so when you get to the part where um, this guy Philip Drew has this, this experience he's this amazing military strategist he's brilliant and and house makes he is so unapologetic for stroking his own ego throughout the book and and so it's funny because it's it's not very believable but then once you start to see oh the war clouds hover civil war begins They start to fight these battles. He declares himself administrator, which is basically the dictatorship. He outlines his intentions, and then he starts all these reforms. He reforms the judiciary. He puts in a new code of laws. He brings up the question of taxation and introduces this centralized taxation, Um, the the Federal Incorporation Act, where they're basically taking private corporations, creating tax-exempt foundations, and that's going to create control over policy and education and taxation and currency. And then at a certain point, you learn the story of uh, the senator that – well, see, we skipped over the first half of the book. But um, Philip Drew's character is mentored by this senator who then uh, is involved with this guy Thor who's uh, a financial wizard on Wall Street. So the political and the financial, they have this conspiracy and that conspiracy is outed to the public. And when the conspiracy is outed to the public – that's when uh, Philip Drew starts to assume power. And the way he does it is, is very, it's not very clever, but uh, House is describing the machinations that he was going through at that time in 1911. So there's a certain irony that can only be drawn once you have something to compare and contrast this awful novel to. Once you start to learn about its author, and what Colonel House was actually doing and planning and who he was working with and on whose behalf he was moving these parts around. Then you could start to see, oh, this is what he was pointing at. This is the IRS. This is the Federal Reserve. This is the welfare state. This is the control of policy and education through tax-exempt foundations. And you can start to well, make a coherent picture out of this uh, this blurry scribble that he made back in 1911. Exactly
0: right and I think that's what I was uh, I was gesturing towards that ultimately a lot of the ideas that were enacted during the uh, the Wilson presidency uh, you can see at least some form of a germ of them in this novel um, not really in a fleshed out policy prescription sense but in any at any rate you can discern the traces of them as you uh, just mentioned there of course the income tax which was uh, first the federal income tax first passed in 1913 and the federal reserve of course uh was signed into law by uh, by Wilson in 1913 as well, and then of course the uh, the League of Nations and the sort of aspiration for this uh, this Commonwealth of the World idea that uh, that Wilson uh, Wilson ostensibly fronted, but but House was extremely important in. Let's let's get to the actual biographical side of it then, because obviously there's uh, for uh, I would assume everyone who's listening to this has read the book, so has some understanding of uh, what Philip Drew does as administrator, but may not understand. House or his uh, his exceptionally important role during the Wilson presidency. Let's talk about that relationship and how it developed. You, you mentioned that they did meet for the first time in 1911. But how did that uh, how did that relationship actually develop from there?
1: Well, um, it's a funny relationship because it happens very quickly, almost as if somebody had developed these two parts in different factories and then all of a sudden put them together and they clicked. So Wilson is quoted as saying that, you know, Colonel House is, you know, basically Colonel House's thoughts are his thoughts. That Woodrow Wilson couldn't have any thoughts as good as Colonel House's thoughts. So basically they have the same thoughts. And so uh, Wilson's very much a puppet because – uh, he had had a, uh, there was a blackmail scandal where he had been cheating on his wife, and uh, certain financiers tried to get the drop on him. Uh, he's put into a position of power, but he doesn't really have power or know what he's doing or have a plan. But the people who put him in power definitely have a plan for him, right? And so when you understand House's role, like House made four governors of Texas. House's father was the third richest man in Texas after the Civil War, so he's coming from a place where they've got. Cotton merch, uh, mercantile banking, cotton trade with the with Britain during the, the during the Civil War, running British, uh, running the Union blockades. There's all this history that House inherits. He didn't earn his money. He and he, like he's a trust fund baby, basically. He's uh, I think he was the seventh child, so he wasn't uh, the the biggest or strongest. He had an illness when he was young, and this made him very intellectually cunning. He had to learn how to not you – know, he used to depend on his physical prowess and then all of a sudden he has to change his mentality. So there's a lot of these inner working kind of gears that come with House that are part of his history because his dad is a, is a, you know, working as an agent on behalf of the Rothschild financial interests. And so he's already inheriting a plan – Like, you know, they're like, oh, when your son grows up, we're going to have him do this type of thing. And he's going to have all this money and all this help and all this access. And then you put them together with someone like David Lloyd George, and then they're deciding on the fate of the world in 1919. Uh, So much. I mean, that that, that affected hundreds of countries. So everything that we know as the 20th century, this guy's like the center of the storm for Americans. He's he's. He's the keyhole through which you can see the British Empire like puppeteering America in the 20th century because House is connected to the Federal Reserve, the Council on Foreign Relations. He's advisor to FDR. He was the handler of Wilson. So he's much like Zbigniew Brzezinski is today for Obama. He, he's that handler. Colonel House is right there, Johnny on the spot to create the covenant of the League of Nations. He's working with H.G. Wells and some of these technocratic ideas of how to bring about world government Is you know, uh, he's following in the legacy of Cecil Rhodes. Um, He came up through the Civil War, is there to create America's involvement in World War I with the Lusitania affair, and then sets everything up for World War II. That that creates the Cold War, the United Nations, which is another continuation of the League of Nations. And so all these, you know, seemingly disparate pieces of history that we've, you know, kind of all surveyed this landscape. And there's, there's this mountain over here. There's this valley over here. There's this river over here. All these things are connected by the landscape that is yet unseen in its clarity. And that's why this is, this is why I was so excited when you gave me this reading assignment. I was like, definitely. I am definitely on that because I got all the resources and I needed an excuse to kind of bring them out and do something with them.
0: Yes, and as we stand, of course, just after the century mark of World War I, obviously that being I think the defining event of the early 20th century and perhaps of the 20th century in in general, it is of course important to look at these figures and how they were, were conspiring behind the scenes to bring about various uh, events that's, that led to that uh, to the outbreak of that war and then to the the results that, uh, that flowed from it and just to flesh out a little bit that relationship between Wilson and House, we could turn to uh, James Perloff's work. Uh, Shadows of Power, and reading from the 10th edition, page 27, if you're following along at home, uh, uh, so close was the relationship between the two that Wilson said of House, "'Mr. House is my second personality. He is my independent self. His thoughts and mine are one. If I were in his place, I would do just as he suggested. If anyone thinks he is reflecting my opinion by whichever action he takes, they are welcome to the conclusion.'" Under House's watchful eye, Wilson paid off as arranged. House was reported to have handpicked his cabinet, cabinet. At Wilson's first cabinet meeting, Franklin K. Lane introduced himself, saying, My name is Lane, Mr. President. I believe I am the Secretary of the Interior. Wilson's first year in office, 1913, saw institution of both income tax and the Federal Reserve, although the former slightly preceded his inauguration. According to Charles Seymour, House's biographer, the colonel was the unseen guardian angel of the Federal Reserve Act. He was regularly in touch with Paul Warburg while the legislation was being written and maneuvered through Congress. In light of President Wilson's dependence on his advisor, it is instructive to know something about House's convictions. And according to another of his biographers, Arthur D. Howden-Smith, House believed that the Constitution, product of 18th century minds and the quasi-classical medieval conception of republics, was thoroughly outdated, that the country would be better off if the Constitution could be scrapped and rewritten, But as a realist, he knew that this was impossible in the existing state of political education. And uh, that's, I mean, that's a particularly revealing quote, because that is precisely one of the things that Philip Drew, administrator, a.k.a. dictator, actually does in this novel, which is to rewrite the Constitution of the United States to... What I found particularly interesting about this rewrite was that it really makes the, uh, the the United States into a much more parliamentary system, almost like what you would find, for example, in Britain or in Canada, with an uh, an executive uh, selected by the Congress, who would form the government and and make his cabinet, uh, uh, and then having a president that was really just a figurehead as uh, head of state as. Royalty supposedly is in the in the British parliamentary system, uh, I, which I found to be quite interesting. That that was the way he wanted to set things up, and then of course it all makes sense when he rolls America and Canada into one unit, saying that they're basically the same thing by now. So Canada will just adopt the American flag, and everything will be peachy keen, which I, I found particularly interesting. As as uh, events play on in the 20th and then now into the 21st century, and that aspect of the agenda continues to roll forward. What's your take on uh, some of the, uh, the, the pronouncements of this new constitution that, that uh, Philip Drew administrators Trader, uh, dictated in this particular novel?
1: Well, the way I see it is, uh, it just, it's a short segue. Uh, the, the book that Brzezinski wrote, The Technotronic Era, Between Two Ages, right? That is the solution to david rockefeller's problem and so david rockefeller says hey you got the solution i want to hire you let's put that in action trilateral commission boom right so i see these parallels in history what is philip true it's the solution it's the solution to what it's the solution to cecil rhodes last will and testament cecil rhodes says we want to create a secret society for the purpose of bringing america back into the british empire great presents you with the problem how are you going to do that colonel house says hey I'm an Anglophile. I want to help you guys solve, solve that problem. My, my family has all these resources, and we can do X, Y, and Z, and we can do this. And they're like, sure. And here, here's, a, here's an assistant to uh, Colonel House, a guy named Frederick Howe, in his uh, autobiography, Confessions of a Reformer. Now, he formerly, Colonel House sends him to Syria on some diplomatic missions and stuff, and it's kind of boring. But then he says, one evening, I, you know, a number of young Englishmen visited me at the Hotel Chatham. You know, like Chatham House. They were Oxford and Cambridge men, brilliant, friendly, amiable. A few days later, I was invited to breakfast with them. Arriving, I found that I was at the house of Lloyd George, that Philip Kerr, my host, was Lloyd George's secretary. He and his associates, Lionel Curtis, Arnold Toynbee, and others were known as Lord Milner's men. They were editors of the periodical known as the Round Table and had organized an imperial conference in each of the British colonies. We talked about the Near East, because he was assigned to Syria. And so it continues on, but basically Howe is saying the people that are giving us our orders are Lord Milner's men. He names them as the Round Table. And the Round Table is a specific group of, of journalists and intellectuals who are working under the the aegis of Cecil Rhodes' Last Will and Testament. I happen to have just acquired the f- It's a first four volumes, so it's 1911 through 1915, of the round, pa- round Tables papers. So in these books, are there plans to get America into the war, to actually create the war for the purpose of gaining all this territory for the empire, while at the same time taking this Philip Drew plan and making it more of a commonwealth idea that it's for everyone's benefit and it's for free, you know. And so, what you see as H.G. Wells's New World Order in 1939, this is coming from these ideas. Wells was also sitting in on these meetings at the Round Table. So it's not a literal Round Table like you know King Arthur. It's a Round Table group. It's a group of associates, uh, the helpers of Rhodes' will, if you will.
0: Now, that's an important point that uh, the part of this plan was to really situate and to to maneuver America into the war because uh, you you raised an important point earlier that I hadn't really considered from this perspective that in Philip Drew, we not only have the the sort of the, the, the actual pronouncements of the, the dictator or the would-be dictator and what uh, what Wilson imagines, the, uh, sorry, what House, <laughs> slip of the lip there, ah, right. what House imagines uh, such a dictator would or could do. But also we have in the development of the narrative itself a kind of suggestion of how these events must unfold. There must be the un- unfolding of a big scandal that ignites public opinion in a certain way. that And suddenly we, uh, we have war and after war people are more prepared to accept uh, different terms and arrangements. They New Order, I think, is actually the uh, phrase uh, used in chapter uh, 26 of this book. Um, It's
1: all throughout the book, actually. New Order is in there, in Philip Drew, administrator, several times. The day after this address
0: was issued, General Drew reviewed his army and received such an ovation that it stilled criticism, for it was plain that the New Order of Things had to be accepted, and there was a thrill of fear among those who would have liked to raise their voices in protest. I mean, this is actually a nightmarish, chilling novel to me in a lot of ways, for the Way that it just it makes it sound like such a wonderful thing when it's really this horrific dictatorship that's being talked about here but anyway well, um, and, and there's,
1: and there's a ping there's a ping pong match that i see there's hg wells writing some novels in the early 1900s there's anticipations there's war in the air war in the air is 1907 he's saying flying machines between england and germany are going to fight in this cataclysmic conflict over europe so seven years before world war one hg wells is writing science fiction about that and so there's these couple books that I think I don't have any evidence yet that Colonel House had read, and then he said, "Oh, I'm going to throw a ping. Pong. I'm going to hit that back at you." And then H.G. Wells responds later uh, with the "Shape of Things to Come," which is like a film version of Philip Drew Administrator in many ways. It's not exact to the book, but when you take uh, you know the dictatorship and then the use of technocracy and technology to you know control the situation and a global government being you know. Um, I forget what the wings – over, Wings Over the World is what they call it instead of – you know and at the end, there's a chilling quote at the end of that film. Uh, the film was made the year after uh, Wells wrote the book. So these things are all coming about right before World War II and these – everything in World War II is tied to World War I and that's a, that's a long line of study, World War I. It's a, it's a big topic.
0: It is an exceptionally huge subject, and but one that really does need further fleshing out, because I think, there, is, as I say, so much of the 20th century really did play out from those events, and, and these precise characters, as you say, were not only intimately involved after the fact, carving up the world and deciding how it would look after the war, but of course, as we as we've talked about, uh, at least helping to situate the the various players into the situation that that precipitated the war, and that's I, I guess where I'm I'm trying to go with this, because as uh, as I say, I mean if this is an, a narrative that's also meant to be prescriptive in in the way that these events can can be brought about, then the the acceptance of the new order of things can be brought about, then it does require some sort of conflict, and. Obviously, I mean there was no you know, civil war or anything that uh that precipitated the uh the Wilson presidency, but we do have World War One and of course my mind goes to the uh the, the testimony of uh of um my mind is blanking the Reese Commission, um
1: Oh sure. Uh that's what Norman Dodd, Norman was Dodd, involved. yes, the testimony of Norman Dodd
0: and and uh the the basically the situation trying to bring uh America into a, a situation of war which nothing could be further from the mind of the average American at the time in uh, that uh, it was first being talked about in the in the halls of the Carnegie Corporation. So again, I mean I th- all of these different pieces of the puzzle seem to align in the idea that World War 1 was very s- specifically used at any rate to to bring about this this acceptance among the public for a different order of the world, which of course is just going to be the, uh, the uh, foisting of the League of Nations, and uh, And the idea of some sort of brotherhood of man as a way of of basically divvying up the world as as these characters see fit and the interesting part of that in terms of this narrative for me is that uh, when it comes to foreign policy in the fa- final closing chapters here when it talks about the way that the dictator basically uses his powers to uh, dictate America's foreign policy, uh, much of the wheeling and dealing that he does with Germany and with England and with Japan and these other powers is basically to offer them up various parts of the globe very magnanimously. Yes, you you may have uh, the Philippines and you may have uh, South America and et cetera, et cetera, as a way of basically bringing everyone to the table, as if these are vast, un- uninhabited areas of the globe that it's, uh, it's up to Philip Drew to dispose of as he sees fit. I mean, again, every aspect of this is so chilling, but there seems to be but so little... But that's Paris
1: 1919. That's the exactly. Paris Peace yes. Conference. Yes. I mean, that's... And the other thing is to, to keep in mind here is that World War I was waged basically until we got into it. It was waged entirely by the grandchildren of Queen Victoria, the German royal family, the Russian royal family. The, those kids were all related. And I don't think they were really in control of anything because there was financial manipulations behind the scene to give them power in the first place. But when you tra- when you trace like. You know, the people that are tapping our telegraph lines, not telegraph, the Atlantic cable during World War I, the British had stationed people here and they had tapped our cables. So when Germany sends this message to Mexico saying, hey, if we get into if America enters the war, we will give you three states in, in the south of, you know, south of America, uh, you know, New, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas. We're going to give you these three states if you in, if you invade at the you know, when they do that. And so that got leaked to the public. It's called the Zimmerman Telegram or the Zimmerman Memo or something like that. You can you can look it up. It's pretty interesting. These things are there because we were being manipulated. Our public did not want foreign excursions of our – we didn't even have an army. We had a navy and when, when people voted and said, let's, let's get into World War One. They had no idea that they were going to create, you know, all these armies and 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 get people to go over there. We thought we were going to send them some money or send them some ships or something like that. America was not in the foreign, uh, you know, invasion. Get your troops over, the, you know, to the other side of the world. Business back then. That was a British thing that they had to totally propagandize our public to start to want this and to demonize the Germans as Huns. There was a large percentage of people on the East Coast that came from Germany. I mean, this was a melting pot back then. And so all these ideas had to be very, very quickly changed through the use of propaganda. And um, like the famous, you know, I want you for the U.S. Army, Uncle Sam, that's Lord Kitchener. And there's a poster like four years before that the British had had Lord Kitchener pointing at people. And they're like, I want you for the British Army. And so, you know, there's all these overlaps that we're not taught about in American schools. I don't know if you're taught about them in Canadian schools, but – I think these things should be known because they're actually a lot more interesting than what we're being taught and what children are being taught today. And if we want to have a a vision of reality that matches reality, we need to start looking at the real information that's available to us through scholarly resources like the Google provides on the electronic versions or at your libraries. I mean, there are books that are being thrown away and burned and You know, they're they're so cheap these days. No one really understands what these things mean. But to me, they mean a defense of freedom because when you can defend freedom using the truth, I think that's the strongest weapon that you can have because it convinces people that maybe they were making assumptions and maybe they were giving away their energy to their enemy and maybe they could do something different. And I think that makes all the difference in what we're doing.
0: I, I think it certainly does, and of course, uh, the, the the corollary of that is that if we if we defend freedom using truth, then the p- opponents of freedom must use lies in order to deceive the public and to get them basically uh, behind a certain agenda, or at least to selectively use certain pieces of truth revealed at the right time, like the Zimmerman telegram. And for people who are looking for a uh, nice narrative exposition of that uh, that whole scenario and how it played out, uh, I think that was covered extensively in the most recent edition of Hardcore History, um, which is doing a series on World War One at the moment. Can
1: so. we talk about that for a yes, second? Because I just do. listened to episode five. Yes. I'm almost done with it, so don't spoil it for me. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed, I listened to it... Um, just a couple days ago. So I'd been studying for this show. I listened to that to get a fresh perspective because he doesn't believe in any conspiracy or he, he might, but he's very clever about how he mm. discloses that through the episode. Yes. Let's go there. Yes. I, Dan is brilliant. He does a great job. I listened to Wrath of the Cons. That was a great series. But the, the Countdown to Armageddon series about World War One is is fascinating because I have a whole set of different books than what he has that kind of points to the same thing but i think he'd be really interested in the things that he hasn't seen on his radar yet because it makes a lot more sense or that we're um, assuming he hasn't seen or yeah exactly i'm sorry i do make a lot of assumptions when i'm not thinking unless you do know
0: <laughs> i don't know if you've had any contact with dan carlin behind the scenes that would be interesting
1: no, I've never never had the privilege to take up any of his time.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> never wanted to bother him. I enjoy listening and I know he puts so much of his time because I understand the depths of research that it takes mm. to make a show like that. So, I don't want to distract him from what he's doing unless I had read something really, really important. I might have that in the future, but it's not it's not organized yet.
0: Yes. Well, agreed. And I, I would encourage people to check out the Blueprint for Armageddon series. I think it is... I mean, of course, it is a lot of mainline history, but it is extremely well told and from a lot of different sources that are, I think, still valuable, despite the fact that uh, there are maybe certain pieces of the puzzle that aren't quite there. But uh, but moving along, then, I guess the... Um the point that I was attempting to make, I forget, <laughs> to be honest, where I was going with all of that. But uh, mm, let's regroup well, our thoughts In an, an effort
1: to wrap it up, I mean, you know, Wilson writes that, I mean, not Wilson, there I go again. Mm. <laughs> Colonel House wrote this plan that's a plan for technocracy. So H.G. Uh, Wells' New World Order and The Shape of Things to Come, those books are Philip drew right? Uh, Bill uh, Wells's book... 19, 1902, Anticipations of Reaction and Mechanical and Scientific Progress Upon Human Life and Thought by H.G. Wells. That book, I think, influenced Philip Drew. You be the judge. But if it means reading Philip Drew, just prepare. That's 100 pages of suck. <laughs> it is not that. pleasant. I mean,
0: yes, I, here is the question I, I, I suddenly remember. So it, do you have any indication from any of the reading you've done in the biographies or, or what have you as to why uh Mandelhaus, Edward Mandelhaus, wrote this particular book. Why did he put this out? I mean, was it, I mean, did he ever specifically talk about that in his correspondence or are we just sort of assuming that this was something like a, I guess, a curriculum vitae or some sort of resume that he could present as, uh, as a, a way to introduce himself or introduce his ideas to these circles?
1: I, I think he, he, he did it as a way to introduce his ideas to the small circle of friends that were Anglophiles. So, when you look at Cecil Rhodes's plan back then, he says, I can help advance that plan. He, he's like a Machiavelli of his day. He says, I want to use my intellect to help advance someone else's plan to dominate the world. Rhodes's plan is today the Five Eyes Alliance of Intelligence, you know, through the Binney and Snowden disclosures. GCHQ is this giant brain. That, again, HGOLs wrote about an electronic brain, a world encyclopedia, right? They created a supranational intelligence group. And that's enacting the Rhodes' last will and testament, and that's bringing America back into the empire, and it's putting everyone under uh, a type of scientific dictatorship or technocracy or cybernetics. You, can, you know, all these terms apply because that's what they're doing. There's a plan. It's in action. You can read about it, and you can see where we're at. We're on, like, you know, step 11 of 12 here.
0: Well, I hope that means there's still time to avert the 12th step. And, and yes, I, guess, yeah. I guess just finally, I think one interesting aspect of all of this for me is that we, I, or at least I myself, as a reader of this here in 2015, knowing, of course, that this was written by Edward Mandelhaus and knowing a little bit about his biography and who he was— I think the the tendency is to associate the author with the the main protagonist. At least uh, we we tend to make that assumption when we're reading. So he's all of the course, characters, yes, House. he's all the characters. Well, that that's exactly right. I mean, not only I think is he Drew and and sort of Drew's action plan is what he's advocating. I think he's also very much Senator Selwyn. And I think the probably the most compelling aspect of this book for me was really Senator Selwyn's manipulations and machinations in the early part of the book to create this business conspiracy because that actually rung true for me that seemed more real than any of the other events of any of yeah. this book and I, I think that had to come from a place of, of actual experience with those types of manipulations which makes sense for someone who ended up being exactly what Senator Selwyn was in this book the the sort of silent power behind the throne who manipulated a, a, a great deal and wielded a great deal of power from uh, from the shadows basically and of course that is Mandel House and I will just put one particularly interesting little nugget in here you will notice that the residence the washington residence of senator Selwyn in this book is called Mandel House yes. <laughs> so he did leave a little a little uh, easter egg i suppose for people to know people in the know to know that it was him i think writing this back in that that time
1: <laughs> well and i i picked up some other things from reading the book but uh, I don't think they're interesting enough to uh, to really provide without any more context.
0: Fair enough. Well, I, I I don't know if we've dissected all of the various aspects of this, but I think as much as I care to, as I'm sure <laughs> listeners yeah, will know, I didn't I mean... really care for this book, literally speaking. But the... it was it was interesting to see this and to and then to over overlap this with what actually happened in the Wilson presidency and I think it is interesting but I think we should also at least make note of the fact that this book has been picked up and expounded by the likes of Glenn Beck and others who of course are now or have talked in recent years about how this is really a plan for the Obama administration and it's all about Obamacare or whatever it seems to be the, uh, the, the sort of, uh, you know, Tea Party Inc. version of this story. Any, any thoughts on how this book is being used by some of the, uh, th- those types of purveyors of this information?
1: Well, uh, I read through the, uh, the article on Salon, the century-old novel, Right-Wingers Believe Guides Obama. And they try to do a slam on it, but they keep providing you with these facts that when you look them up, turn up to be, you know, somewhat accurate. So there's, there's like, uh, I don't know. It's written in an incendiary way. If you take out all the incendiary words and just concentrate on the facts that are being claimed or asserted or not, or, or dismissed, that's where you're going to find interesting reading. So uh, this turgid tome of trash, Philip Drew Administrator, is the worst book you'll ever read to start the most interesting journey intellectually that you can take. Because once you get out of the book and start to look at Colonel House and what he actually did in reality – That is a million times more interesting. So like Philip Drew is just his his mile marker, his milestone or, you know, his landmark that he leaves there. So he's like, hey, if you're really interested in how the world works, read this, discard it and then start to look at history for yourself. Because, you know, House wrote uh, What Really Happened at Paris with Charles Seymour. And then Charles Seymour published the intimate papers of Colonel House. That is some of the most interesting political reading, aside from something like. With No Apologies by Barry Goldwater, where in Chapter 33, he'll tell you the factual and actual story of how Wilson was manipulated by the bankers. And then, you know, almost a century later, the trilaterals, you know, go to Wall Street. They pick Jimmy Carter. It's the same group of people. They're just wearing different cloaks. So what Selwyn was doing as far as a business conspiracy, that's what's actually going on. What Philip drew is is a cloak over that to hide it and make sure the public doesn't, you know, clamor for a new bank because the old one's crooked. That's how the Federal Reserve got in. J. P. Morgan had too much control. They brought the Federal Reserve as the solution. So it's it's a, it's you know it's his it's his magic trick that he can play on the public, and by presenting Philip Drew as this benevolent dictator, they're really able to provide privately control everything behind the scenes through using tax-exempt foundations that influence our education and, and foreign and domestic policy.
0: It is a Machiavellian scheme and all the more amazing for the fact that it was implemented in one form or another to one degree or another. So again, I think we'll have to leave the conversation at that point. There's still a lot of different threads to this. But of course, people can start to pursue some of this in their own time. And of course, we will link up um, some of these different articles and pieces of the puzzle that we've been talking about in this conversation in the show notes at CorbettReport.com. So I hope people will go there for more of the details. But before we let you go, Richard Grove, I would be remiss if in my duties as host of this conversation, not to mention, once again, as I recently did, your most recent episode of the Peace Revolution podcast, which, as I say, I was delighted to, to learn uh, with, uh, the, the truth about the authorship of the Declaration of Independence, and uh, that was a, a delightful little gem that I had really no idea of, so thank you for introducing me to that. And also, I will commend to the attention of the listeners out there And a very important, uh, very interesting, very, very well done documentary project, interview project that you have just recently released for Tragedy and Hope members, The Future of Freedom, a feature interview with NSA whistleblower William Binney, which clocks in at a hefty three and a half hours, but is absolutely jam-packed with information. And I understand there is a, a shorter, more streamlined version of that coming out for the public in the near future. Tell us just a little bit about this project.
1: Uh, well, the project started because I wanted to kind of map out in a visual style for an audience that doesn't know about these things the downfall of American intelligence both through uh, the education system where we're being dumbed down and juxtapose that to our intelligence uh, you know, uh, establishment in this country, however you want to refer to it. That has been completely turned against the people not for the purpose of preserving their rights but for the purpose of violating their rights and enslaving us through technology, a scientific dictatorship. And so there's so much information on this. It actually became a series of films in an outline form. And then it became how do you actually take the steps? The first step is interviewing somebody. And my favorite person that I wanted to interview at that time and got contact information for, and the person that said yes, was Bill Binney. And so I ended up uh, working a little bit longer on that initial interview because to do a higher level of production value – uh, there's concepts that oh I know how to do that, and then there's actual doing it, and the actual doing it took longer than I had estimated, which is you know the case when you're learning. So it's nothing to be embarrassed about, but you know doing doing uh, meticulous detailed work does take time and energy and effort, and then, so it took longer than I thought. But the the actual reward was better than I had expected as well. So what I'm trying to do is cut that down to a a manageable 90 minutes or so that an average audience could watch the most potent uh, quotes and answers that he has to offer. And then for the subscribers that helped support and and create the interview uh, opportunity in the first place, I want to provide them with a little bit more behind the scenes and also pick up some questions that I want to use throughout the film series. So it's not just, you know, it's some of it at the end is Bill talking about uh, questions on American history and, and stuff like that that I wanted to pick up for different sections. So it's, a, it's a, an outstanding opportunity to present people with valid and factual and substantial and meaningful information that otherwise would never make it on their radar. So I love it.
0: And how do people become a member of the Tragedy and Hope community?
1: Uh, from my memory, I think you go to tragedyandhope.com and then there's uh, a tab that might say subscribe or become a member. I don't go to the public site that much because I'm always working inside the community (laughs) and working on projects. So, uh, yeah, you might have to be diligent. I like people who know how to, you know, look for things and click and search. And sometimes I don't make it the most obvious, not because I'm trying to make things hard, but because I'm a poor web developer.
0: Well, actually, there are a couple of subscribe buttons right there on tragedyandhope.com, so hopefully people will be able to figure that out. Anyway, of course, we'll have the link to Tragedy and Hope there in the show notes. Richard, Andrew Grove, thank you for another interesting conversation, and my apologies for making you reread Philip Drew.
1: Oh, James, don't apologize. Thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for doing what you do because it's continually inspiring to me.
0: Excellent. All right, friends, that's going to do it for another edition of Film Literature and The New World Order. But as is our want here on this podcast, we're going to close up with just some of the the comments from listeners of last month's edition of this series, number 22, where we were talking with Roderick Long about Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, First off, we had one member comment on the website itself from Phil Hirsch, who writes, Hi, James, great F-L-N-W-O here's a request. I'm very much hoping you will do a show on Foxcatcher. Steve Carell does a great John DuPont. Thank you very much for the request, Phil Hirsch. I will add it to the list, but unfortunately, this is probably number 157 on that list, or thereabouts. As I say, I do get requests for this series pretty much on a weekly basis, if not on a daily basis, so... I do appreciate all the requests that come in, and I do apologize for the fact that we can't get around to all of them, but I do try to check out as much as I can. Obviously, I can't spend all of my time watching movies or reading books, but I do appreciate the suggestions that come in, so thank you for that. Uh, let's turn to some emails that came in about last month as well. Uh, one from Don, who writes, uh, In your FLNWO podcast about A Christmas Carol, you stated... There is a reason, after all, why Dickens was the most popular writer in the English language during his lifetime, bar none. However, sadly, you did not elucidate your statement. I assume you were intimating that Dickens was part of the establishment of the time that was seeking to bring in measures of social control, and that is the NWO part of the analysis of this piece of literature is that a correct assumption? And uh, thank you for the question, Don, but that is an incorrect assumption. I'm sorry I did not elucidate that statement properly. Uh, What I meant by that was simply that Dickens was the most popular writer in the English language during his lifetime, bar none, because he was an exceptionally good writer. And uh, for any students of literature, specifically of English language literature, of course, Dickens is a towering figure because of his remarkable ability to Draft completely formed characters, sometimes in a matter of one or two sentences. He can, uh, he can draw a figure more vividly and lifelike than a lot of novelists could do in an entire book. So he was an exceptionally gifted writer. And he was also, uh, for much of his work, paid by the word, um, or paid by the installment in in the periodicals that were publishing his work, so he knew a thing or two about keeping, keeping the audience in suspense and uh, pulling on their heartstrings, which I think uh, was probably part of his success as well. I, I didn't really mean to intimate anything whatsoever about uh, establishment ties or anything of that sort uh, with regards to that, but thank you for, uh, for writing in, and uh, thank you for asking for that clarification. Also, we got an email in from Mac, who wrote, uh, in regards to A Christmas Carol, Scrooge experiences joy as a consequence of his giving, and Mac uh, uh, puts in a uh, a link to Matthew uh, chapter 25, verses 35 to 40, and explains, uh, it is grace at work, a direct consequence of right choice. Okay, so that's going to do it for the feedback from last month's episode, and as always, I'm looking forward to your feedback with regards to today's conversation. Of course, members are invited to uh, sign in and leave your comments on the website itself. Or, of course, you can email your comments in via the contact form on corporatereport.com or even record yourself with your comments on the SpeakPipe application there on the contact form. And let's get prepared for next month. Next month, another reading assignment for you. This time, we're going to be reading Narcissus and Goldman by Hermann Hess. It's not a particularly long read, so hopefully everyone will be able to get a chance to get that book and to have it read for next month. I'm very much looking forward to that conversation and looking forward to you guys joining me for it. So until then, thank you for listening and take care.